0: As you would have them do unto you. Then maybe folks would not have to suffer. If there was more love for your brother, but these are trying times, just yes, I say, man is always talking about using humanity to man. i
1: Blue notes that come from the social voice of Donny Hathaway illuminates the trying times that many of us are experiencing as we struggle to deal with the COVID pandemic, unemployment, demonstrations that are occurring in cities all over the country, and the injustice that seems to be part of the American experience. We hear a solution to violence, as well as our guest today, Louisville Metro Councilman David James, fills these trying times as well. But like David James, we hear at Solution to Violence believe that these trying times also present an opportunity for change and a better tomorrow.
2: Hello, friends. You're listening to Forward Radio, WFMP, LP 106.5 FM. I'm Jamie McMillan with Jim Johnson, and we are your hosts for Solutions to Violence. Our program is sponsored by Forward Radio, an affiliate of the Louisville Fellowship of Reconciliation. The following is part of the WFMP Public Affairs Educational Programming. The views expressed are those of our guests and not the station. We want you to hear your views on the program, so contact us by email at
1: solutions violence18
2: at gmail.com.
1: We want to hear your views too. Our guest today is Louisville Metro Councilman David James. David James was elected to the Metro Council in 2010 and has now served three terms as a representative of Louisville 6th District. He is currently the president of the Metro Council and has served two terms as majority leader as well as chair of the Democratic Caucus. James has served 20 years in law enforcement, rising to the rank of detective with the Louisville Metro Police Department. He was part of the United States Army Reserve between 1983 and 1989. Councilman James has also been actively involved in many community charitable organizations. Welcome to Solutions of Balance, Councilman James. Thank you for having
3: me. Councilman
2: James, we want to talk about some issues and concerns involving the governing the city of Louisville, but uh, tell us a little bit about your childhood. You grew up in a middle-class neighborhood and working-class community?
3: Yep, yeah, I grew up in a, a middle-class Community in West Louisville, a on 1300 block of South 43rd Street for a focal point. If you think about uh, in the old days, Wayne Supply Company and Miles Park Racetrack, right down the street from me. And that's where I grew up.
2: Well, how does your childhood experience uh, influence your thinking as a, a Louisville Metro councilman?
3: I think it, it influenced it greatly. So when I lived there on 43rd Street up until the sixth grade, so my next door neighbors were Gerald Neal. Uh, Senator Neal and my neighbor directly behind me were the fractions and their father was one of the first the only person I knew that was a police officer he became a police officer during that time helped influence me to become a police officer and you know when I was growing up in the 60s there was a lot of social unrest and civil unrest going on. And I would see that as a child on television, you know, I would see the police officers and the dogs and the sticks and the water hoses and all those things. And that influenced my thought process in my career in the future. I, I became a police officer because I wanted to stop police from doing things like that to people that look like me. And then uh, from there, we moved to Shively a street called Darlene Drive. It's a giant cul-de-sac. We were like the second black family to live there. That was an experience. And then Ended up going to Butler High School, played in the marching band, and then went to the University of Louisville and joined the military and then joined the police department. And in 2010, I became an elected official. So that brings me to where I am today.
2: Well, we wanted our listeners to know that you uh, have a degree in police administration uh, from the U of L, and because of the divide between Louisville Metro Police Department and the African American community, it's probably safe to say many young African Americans are not interested too much in, in serving with the LMPD. But here you are, a Black male, with years of experience as a police officer. What motivated you to become a police officer? And and, and what was your African-American community response to that decision?
3: I would say that when I became a police officer, the police department was under a consent decree at the time, back in 1984.
2: And a consent decree, is.
3: Oh, so there was a federal lawsuit from the Black Police Officers Association at the time that had alleged that the city of Louisville and the Louisville Police Department were actively uh, discriminating against people wanting to become police officers that were black and ones that were on the department that were black in, in holding them back in promotions. And so a federal judge had ruled that for every white officer that was hired, they'd have to hire two black officers. And so at that time, I was a senior at the University of Louisville. And so I thought, and they had not done any hiring for over two years because of the consent decree. And so my senior year, I thought, you know, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and apply and see what the test is like. And I did. And I, I scored, you know, to the top of the list. And so the next thing I know, I'm going through the process of being hired and I got hired and it happened very quickly. And so um, my reception onto the police department by my my white colleagues was not a a warm and fuzzy one because of the consent decree and all that had been surrounding it. Hmm. And there was also some, there was some support at the time from African-Americans in Louisville because of the lawsuit, they were seeing, you know, black people becoming police officers. So they were, somewhat supportive, but still looked at the police department with kind of a side eye because of the history of the police department. You know, the police department was that tool of government that enforced segregation laws and all of the bad things associated with it. Yeah. And so it was a, a very interesting
1: time. Did not know that.
2: So how, how did your service on uh, LMPD influence your interest in uh, in uh, Louisville Metro Council?
3: So after Being on the department for a little bit, I eventually went to work in the narcotics unit as an undercover narcotics detective. And during that time, you know, I was buying drugs from a lot of people and and doing a lot of search warrants and all those things. And after a period of time, you know, I'm starting to arrest the same people again and again, and their family members. And I started thinking, we don't have a really good public policy for how we're handling this drug issue, because this is this is really not working the way that I I think that it should work, right? You know, when you when you're at U of L sitting there t- taking criminal justice classes and you're talking about solving problems, I didn't feel like I was solving any problems after a period of time because we were doing the same thing: we were arresting people, putting them in jail, not treating them, and they're if they were addicted to drugs before, they're still addicted to drugs, and they're still going to do the same thing. We weren't fixing the problem, and so I became somewhat outspoken about it and how we were dealing with the public issue of drug abuse and and the police department at the time at one point we had what was known as a street corner task force and they would deal with the open-air drug markets that would take place you know citizens would call in and say people are selling drugs in front of my house and shooting guns and i can't let my children go out and play i need you all to do something and so we would do that and, you know, the community would be very thankful. They'd come out and bring us cookies and cake, Kool-Aid, you know, they were happy. And so the mayor at the time didn't really like that image of having a drug problem in our city. And so he disbanded the, uh, the unit. And so the former commander of that unit, uh, when he would do public appearances and, and they would ask, why why did you all stop? He would say, why we stopped. And so he was told, you know, don't say that anymore. But he kept saying it. So they eventually transferred him to the tow lot to guard the tow lot. And it was at that point that I recognized and realized that public policy surrounding police work and drug policy and how things happen were very, very important. And that I was going to run for office at some point in my future to try and change that.
1: Okay. so the district you represent, District 6, includes Algonquin California, Limerick, Old Louisville, Park Hill, Russell, St. Joseph, Shelby Park, Smoketown, Jackson, Taylor, Barry, and University. That representation demonstrates you know something about poverty. Oh, I do. How does living in a working class community disadvantage an individual in terms of their finding a path to a middle class lifestyle? How does living in a working class community disadvantage one in terms of finding a pathway to a middle-class
3: life? I, I think that in, in the neighborhoods that I represent, finding a path forward in many areas of my district is difficult. It's challenging, quite frankly. In my area, of California, for example, the California neighborhood, which yeah. is basically uh, Oak Street to North to Broadway, 28th down to so 13th Street is California neighborhood. That area is the poorest zip code in this state. And so, so the, the people that are there working every day, trying to make ends meet in a very challenging environment and representing them is, is real important to me. And so, you know, you have people there working for $7.25 an hour and trying to raise I'm a family on that. And it's, it's, it is, it's the if I say difficult, that's not a true word to say for that, to do that. It's it's almost criminal to pay someone $7.25 an hour trying to raise a family. Sure. And so in, in those specific areas where such a challenge, you also have a high amount of crime, you have a high amount of violence, uh, you have uh, challenges in education, you have a lot of vacant and abandoned properties. But the good part is, you have a lot of people there that love each other. And so, and they want life to be different and they want life to be better for themselves. And so I I take it upon myself and my responsibility to try to do everything I can to make that happen.
2: Well, there's there's a lot of violence there just in uh, having that minimum wage when people can't, can't make ends meet, all different levels. So your service with Louisville Metro Police Department, as well as your service as a commissioner, Kentucky Bureau of Investigation gives you an in-depth Experience with law enforcement when it comes to dealing with uh, violence that is now occurring, as you mentioned and, and illustrated in your district. How does law enforcement experience influence your thinking as a metro councilman?
3: Sure. So, as a you know, I was a police officer in law enforcement in total, including KBI and University of Louisville LMPD for thirty years, and so you know it gives you the ability to see a. Part of your community that most people never, ever get a chance to see. Because when you're dealing with people, mostly when they're at the worst time of their life, right? People don't call you on the best day of their life to invite you over for cookies and cake when you're a police officer. They call you when when things have gotten out of control, something bad's happened. And so the average person doesn't get to see people in that state of mind rarely. And so when you see that day in and day out, it's a very humbling experience of, of human existence, right? And so I guess what I would say is as a council person, having taken those 30 years of being a police officer into account, it does a couple of things for me. It 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 allows me to, to be able to see people for where they really are because I've seen them for where they really are. And it allows me to have conversations and see through the BS, quite frankly. I think that you have seen me frequently challenge the mayor or the police chief about things they have said on TV or in the news because I know better when they're not being truthful because I've been there, done that. And so, you know, I take that experience and I use it to the best of my ability. I guess one of the things I would say is that being a police officer for 30 years has given me the opportunity to be called everything but my name by people. (laughs) And and so where some of my colleagues have not had that opportunity on the council, I've, I've had it every day of my life. And so when people get mad and say things to me, it doesn't really affect me, right? And so it just, you know, I just keep doing what I'm doing. And so I think that it has given me the ability to have conversations with people. It's given me the ability to talk to citizens and understand truly what they're saying to me. But it also gives me the ability to push back and try to be more transparent and truthful with the citizens, even though the mayor and the police chief may not like it when I do that, and and me not really care. So I think of it as a blessing, quite frankly.
1: Okay. So Councilwoman Jessica Green talked about the violence that is occurring in in Louisville's West End currently. Over 140 people died this year as a result. 162. Of lots of that violence, lots of evidence demonstrates that that much of that gun violence is now occurring in U.S. cities that has to do with illegal drug trade. The research suggests that criminalization of drug addiction, as well as the war on drugs, and you mentioned this, has been a, a dismal failure. The war on drugs began in 1982 during the Reagan administration. That strategy had to do with tracking down drug dealers, breaking up drug cartels, as you well know. But since the 1980s, drug abuse and chemical dependency is, has grown exponentially. By 2002, a million people were dying from opioid overdose. By 2014, that number had increased to a 1,500,000. And this information comes from designation HOPE blog, The Evidence of Addiction and Treatment Through the Ages, September 2016. By 2013, over 207 million prescriptions of opioid painkillers were being written each year, a dramatic increase from 76 million prescriptions written in 1991. And that's according to the National Institute of Drug Abuse. By 2016, some 17.6 million people were suffering from alcohol use disorder. Approximately 7.4 million people over the age of 12 struggle with drug addiction. States historical figures in addiction. We wonder here: would a university healthcare system that would give everyone suffering from drug addiction access to drug counseling? Police are not trained drug counselors, yet they are called on to arrest drug dealers and those who possess illegal drugs. Should this job be a job for the police, or would access to drug counseling provided by a universal healthcare system diminish the drug problem? our country now faces? What do you think?
3: I think a couple of things. I think, first of all, I used to tell people this, I don't care if there's a mountain as big as Mount Everest outside my door of cocaine. If nobody wants it, it doesn't matter. Right. And so in America, we make up, you know, 4% of the world's population and use over 80% of the world's illegal drugs. It's our problem. And so I think that we spend a tremendous amount of money on arresting people and investigations and all those things, and only a fraction of that amount of money on treatment. So do I believe that we should stop the criminalization of drug trafficking? No. I think you got to have, you know, a hammer sometimes to get make people go get the carrot. And what I mean by that is, is that... Um, You know, people are going to sell drugs because there are people that want to buy drugs. If we can make it so that we minimize the number of people that are actually trying to buy drugs, then we put drug dealers out of business. Yeah, it's pretty simple. And for those that that are still left, then that's what they have prisons for. And so I think there's a combination of things that have to be done here in America in order to make it better. But I don't see that taking place in any real way in our country. However, it needs to be okay. So your bigger question was: was universal health care? Yes, I think universal health care. I think health care in America should be a right uh, for every citizen. Okay, yes. so
2: police are not trained drug counselors, then, and no, they're not. And they, but they're still called to arrest drug dealers and those who possess illegal drugs. So should that be the job of the police, or is it is it feasible to place a counselor in a position where? You know, it's associated with the police and, and has part of the responsibility of, of dealing with those persons who are accused.
3: Yeah. So I don't think we need a drug counselor to come and talk to uh, drug dealers. I think we need the police for drug dealers. I do think we need mental health specialists, social workers for those that are addicted. We just had this conversation with the mayor this morning, a matter of fact. And so I feel like as we go through this budget process that we're talking about right now uh, on Metro Council, Um, that we should not only be talking about money for the homeless and dealing with the homeless, because what you're really talking about when you're talking about helping the homeless is a large population that has substance abuse and addiction issues and mental health Mm -hmm. issues. And if if Miss Jones calls and says, uh, my son uh, hasn't been taking his medication and he's back out walking down the sidewalk naked again, they're going to call the police for that. It's really not the the police. They don't know how to deal with that. And so we should really be have the opportunity for mental health specialists to respond to that type of situation to help that person that's in crisis. When the people at First and Broadway call from Thorntons and say, we need the police to come clear the lot of all the homeless people out here harassing my customers. The police are going to come and do what the police do. They're not going to help anybody when they do that. You know, and so who should really come for, to help them? There should be some social service workers and our mental health specialists that come and deal with the people there on that lot because the police are either going to come and shoo them away or arrest them. Neither one of those helps them and neither one of those really helps the Thorntons or our city because they're going to be back tomorrow, right? And so, so when we talk about deflection of police services and, and replacing that with mental health uh, specialists and social workers to deal with those issues that need to be dealt with. I think that's something that we should be doing. And I've, I've, I'm pushing for that as we talk about this money that we're talking about spending um, here for our city. Yeah, okay. well, that's,
2: you know, that's part of the question. Is it feasible? And, and it, you have another whole uh, network of uh, administration to put something like that into place, Right. Right. To have a whole force of of workers, not police, but those counselors, you have you have those people who are paid by the city. I mean, is that is that what we're talking about?
3: No, I don't think I don't know that we need to do it so that they're paid by the city. I think that we can contract that with um, some mental health service agencies like University of Louisville School of Public Health, Centerstone, Seven Counties. They already have people. They do that. That's what they specialize in. And quite frankly, the city is not good at that stuff. And so, I think that having someone that does that knows what they're doing. Uh now, now, somebody in the city may have to help manage that and 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 deal with the administrative part of it. But the work itself, we should let people that already do it know how to do it. Do it, in my opinion. Sure. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Hey, you've been uh, on a panel that's been interviewing candidates for the. New chief of police in Louisville. Uh, it's related to your work uh, with the panel. You sponsored the bill in the council, which passed. That's the bill, and what you what do you think? What is the bill, and and what do you think it the means for the citizens of, of Louisville?
3: For the civilian review board. Yeah. So the civilian review board just passed. It is something that we. It's been talked about in this city for a long time. When it was initially brought up actually passed by the board of aldermen before the consolidated local government was created the problem with it at the time and the problem with it still at, at that time it, it was that it they passed it with subpoena power but the board of aldermen did not have authority to give subpoena power because they themselves didn't have subpoena power and then when consolidated local government came about and the they took all of the old county ordinances and all the old city ordinances and converted them into Metro ordinances, they didn't do that with that old ordinance for civilian review. So we haven't had one. And so last year, we attempted to resurrect it and try to do that, except for the mayor and the police chief were not supportive of that effort, and that wasn't working. And so this year, when the Breonna Taylor incident occurred, we were able to get more political momentum, and, and the mayor was supportive of it at that point, and so was the police chief. And so it finally passed Councilwoman Paula McCraney and Deputy Mayor Ellen Hessen worked really hard as co-chairs of a work group of about 35 people, citizens from all across the, the city, to put together the language for that ordinance. And in doing so, it passed. And the details of that are people are submitting their names to the council right now because the council gets three people they get to submit for the mayor to nominate. Well, we get to submit six names and the mayor picks of those six, three people. And then he picks four. And then there are certain organizations that get to submit names for him to pick two for a total of 11 people to create the civilian review board. And we're also accepting applications up until the 29th of December for applicants wishing to apply for the position of an inspector general. The inspector general is going to be a very powerful position to oversee Things within the police department. It, it is not a secret that the our police department has had some issues and not good ones, uh, ranging from the stopping of citizens in West Louisville for traffic stops and handcuffing and searching them in an effort to drive down violent crime, to children being molested in the Explorer scandal when the Youth Explorer situation, to theft of overtime to. You name it, it's happened, right? And, and all of that is related to a lack of oversight of the police department. In a perfect world, you'd have a police chief that was a good police chief, and then you'd have a public safety director as the civilian oversight of that police chief to make sure everything was okay, and then you'd have a mayor and a deputy mayor. In Louisville, up until May of this year, under Greg Fisher's administration, We did not have a safety director and we had a bad police chief and the mayor refused to hold that police chief accountable because he didn't have a public safety director to help him with that. Did not have a law enforcement professional that knew anything about law enforcement. The mayor is a mayor and he's a businessman and the deputy mayor is an attorney by trade, neither of which is a law enforcement professional. So them managing the police chief was a bad idea and it shows. So now we have a public safety director, her name is Amy Hess, retired at highest ranking female in the FBI. And she is uh, there, we have a interim police chief, uh, Yvette Gentry, who's doing a fantastic job and she's holding people accountable and uh, Amy Hess is holding her accountable. And they are working together to uh, help fix our police department while we are finalizing and the mayor's looking through the names of police chief candidates. And so hopefully things will be better. And with the advent of the civilian review board and the members that will be chosen, uh, we will submit our names to the mayor on January the 4th. And shortly after that, we should have a new police chief named. We'll also have a report from Hilliard and Heights that's been doing a study of the police department available about the same time. And all of that will come together, and we will start the new year with a new direction and a a new purpose with our police department. And hopefully things will be much better.
1: Okay, so Councilman James, you talked about the Citizens Police Review Board. What kind of power will the Louisville Metro Citizens Review Board have? And will that authority be enough to greatly diminish the killings of unarmed African Americans and the racial profiling that has existed within LMPD?
3: I don't think the Citizens Review Board is going to stop that. I think actually having good leadership is going to stop that. I think that the Citizens Review Board is going to allow for citizens to see what its government, its police department is or is not doing. What it is or is not investigating, uh, all of which has been like some deep, dark secret that's taken place over the years. And so it will give credibility uh, back to a police department that has lost it, its credibility and its legitimacy. Um, I don't believe that the civilian review board itself is going to stop what you just talked about. I think that's really about leadership. That is simply leadership. And we have not had good leadership.
1: Okay. But the civilian review board, many are very concerned that the civilian review board retains subpoena power. Mm-hmm. So that would allow the board to subpoena officers who some believe have committed crime or botched investigations. So how important is that?
3: I think having subpoena power is very important for the civilian review board. Whether we actually get the state government legislature to, to provide that for us is a different story. But we'll see. They, they began their deliberations in January. I'm not, I would not bet any body parts that we're going to get that subpoena power from the state legislature, but we could, we'll see. But regardless if we don't have it or, or not, the fact that we have a inspector general in place will be the real key. The subpoena power is icing on the cake. But even without that, having the inspector general is really the, where the power in, in is rests within that situation.
1: But the Civilian Review Board will have some influence on how the police department conducts its business, right?
3: It has some influence. It makes recommendations to the police chief about disciplinary issues and investigations. It does not issue discipline. Only, state law only allows the police chief to do issue discipline. So therefore, the, the real thing that the Civilian Review Board creates Sunshine on a situation that had no sunshine, and creates legitimacy and credibility for the police department. The real thing that changes our police department, quite frankly, is leadership. In my opinion.
1: Okay, so let's change uh, subject here just a bit. Over 100 people have died in Louisville this year as a result of gun violence. Many of these homicides were perpetrated by against young African Americans that fact must weigh heavy on the minds of police officers as they begin their daily chips. If you could diminish the number of homicides, would that have a positive impact on our police force? And would that impact change the way the community be, views LMPD?
3: Yeah, I, I think that any time that we end up with violent death in our community, it doesn't do anything to help our community. And I'd I, I really I want to expand that conversation just a little bit in that I don't think we should be focused on the 162 people that have died in our community due to violent gun, gun actions. I think we should be also focused on the over 600 people that have been shot and didn't die. Because the only thing that is the difference between a shooting and a homicide is bullet placement. The fact that EMS does great work and we have fantastic doctors and nurses down at university hospital. That's the only difference. Yeah. And it's, it's sad that we have have trained our hospital to be able to be a combat hospital because that's literally what they're doing every day. So having over 600 people shot in our community is unacceptable. We don't have 600 people shot in our community in four or five years. That's all happening in one year, and that's unacceptable, and and that is 600 families that that are taking care of a loved one who's now paralyzed or is on a, a colostomy bag or, you know, has been injured due to gunfire, and, and many times that gunfire has taken place around very young children, and they've seen it. Uh, we have children in our community that are actually suffering from PTSD because in their block, in their neighborhood, 20 people have been shot this year, and they saw every one of it. When it happened. And, and then we say, well, why is that child having such behavioral problems in school? They must be a bad kid. No, they're not a bad kid. They're living in survival mode is what they're living in. So if you've been around when 20 people around you have been shot and killed in your block where you're supposed to feel the safest that you can feel in your entire life, and you can't feel safe there, and you're sleeping on the floor in your house at night so bullets don't kill you, and then you go to school and the teacher asks you to to take your hat off or something, and it turns to World War III, there's a reason for that. It's not because that kid's really a bad kid. It's because that kid is in a bad, bad situation.
1: Sure. And so the gun violence is a leading cause of premature death in the U.S. Killing more than 38,000 people, causing, as you mentioned, 85,000 injuries this year. So that came from Center for Health Progress. What's your position on passing gun safety laws? What kind of gun safety policy would you support?
3: Uh, You know, I think that the things that Governor Bevins did when he was governor on gun control is just the gun laws that Governor Bevins escorted in uh, when he was governor. We're paying for that now. When he's allowed people to carry guns in our community without a permit, that that just opened the doorway to a whole lot of stuff. And so now, when we once had gang members who are drug dealers who were not carrying guns because they didn't want to get in trouble by the police, well, now it's legal for them to carry a gun. So you know, it has changed everything. And so I think that there are some common sense gun laws that are very easy to to pass that we should should pass things like the red flag laws where if a person has been deemed mentally unfit or or has been a danger to others and has made threats that we can remove their right to access to a gun that we can't seem to somehow pass in the state of Kentucky is sim- should be just simple logic it's not anti-gun anything it's just trying to keep people safe right And if a person has been convicted of domestic violence and injuring people, and we don't take away their right to a gun, that's ridiculous. Or or someone who has been convicted of assault and shooting someone, right? I mean, there are certain things that we can do. It is not rocket science. In our country, the fact that background checks for, for weapons tracing can only be done by hand because Congress is in the pocket of the NRA and we can't computerize weapons tracing—that's ridiculous. So there are some things that we should do. There are some solutions. We just
2: have to uh, make them happen, right? Well, we know the I, death of uh, Brianna Taylor has uh, resulted in a, uh, was the result of a drug raid and, and conducted by Louisville Metro Police. Now, many people are, are demanding L- LMPD reform. Councilman James, your experience in law enforcement as well as experience as a president of the Louisville Metro Council, you're, you're in a unique position uh, to influence the re- reform. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, some people are asking for defunding, but uh, we want to hear from you on that. What should be our focus then when we speak of reforming the LMPD?
3: I think there's a few things. You know, on the Metro Council, we've done a few things. We passed Breonna law, Breonna's law, which also includes uh, the mandated use of body cameras by LNPD, uh, especially uh, when doing search warrants. We passed a ordinance, uh, use of force ordinance for LNPD. We uh, passed a resolution telling the mayor and the FOP to negotiate into the contract uh, the use of drug testing and alcohol testing when officers are involved in a critical incident. And we passed a resolution to the mayor to be more transparent. The mayor often talks about, you know, transparency and compassion, but we are one of the most untransparent governments I've ever seen. And so all of those things are in an effort to help reform LMPD. For example, today, you could do an open records request and get uh, the last hour of radio transmissions from MetroSec. You can get the last hour of 911 calls from MetroSafe. You can get the last hour's worth of body camera footage from LMPD. Right now, you could do that. But let one person call in about a complaint dealing with any of that stuff, and you can't get it anymore because LMPD will say, oh, it's under investigation. We have cases that are under investigation from complaints from citizens about police officers since 2015. Since 2015. Since 2015. That means the citizen hasn't received satisfaction that their complaint was ever heard. The police officer is still under suspicion of something that he or she may or may not have done. But more importantly, all that information, that data, is still being held in abeyance by LMPD and not releasing it to the public since 2015. So with that and citizens not being able to see and hear and understand what their government has been doing, is, is unacceptable. And, and quite frankly, the fact that the administration ha- has the ability to, to, the mayor can sign an order today saying, we're not going to keep those things restricted from the citizens any longer, but he refuses to do that. So that's why we passed that particular resolution. So some of the things that we want for reform, we have done the things that this, the council can do, has done. But a lot of the other things have to be done by state legislature. So when people talk about changing state laws that those records can, can not be hidden behind anymore, that's a state law that has to be changed. When people talk about changes to the contract, some parts of the police contract are buried in state law. And we can't change that unless the state legislature changes it. Whether you're talking about subpoena power for the civilian review board, or whether you're talking about the amount of time an officer can wait before they give a statement to about an incident they were involved in. All those things are controlled by state law. So Mm -hmm. even with the things that are in place currently, if you didn't change any of that, I'll go back to if you have good leadership, it won't be a problem.
2: In terms of police again, you're former president of the Louisville Fraternal Order of Police. And mm-hmm. You voted against the renewing of the FOP contract. Why is that?
3: So I believe that the police should have gotten a pay raise. I believe that the pay raise they should get should be much higher than the one they got. But there were parts of the contract that I did not agree with. If you looked at the new sections of the contract, you'll see in there there's a place called Article Number 17. Article Number 17 in the contract has new language uh, that basically says that unless a police officer commits a felony and that the police officer is not the term of probable cause, it's way beyond probable cause, demonstrable evidence exists in the form of videotape or photograph or audio that the officer is absolutely 100 percent sure that they actually did it, that the police chief and the mayor cannot suspend the police officer with no pay. That's ridiculous. And so that's why we we end up with police like Brad Schumann, who did something that he shouldn't have done to a young explorer uh, in the Boy Scout program in the backseat of his police car, still receiving a paycheck from the city up until just three or four weeks ago. Or, or the officer that back in January went into the Thorntons on Taylor Boulevard and did something to a young lady in there on videotape just got fired after he was convicted in court. That that's unacceptable. I can't I can't vote for that. That is ridiculous.
1: That has a great deal of impact coming from David James, who is former longtime police officer, I would think. Let's switch directions here. Besides the police reform, what kind of economic reform would benefit the African-American community and what kind of reform is possible? I think
3: there's a lot of reform that can benefit the African-American community. So you have to think back about how the African-American community of West Louisville got to where it is, or how the African-American community got to where it is in our country. And sometimes people don't want to hear about this, but I'm going to talk about it. So African-Americans didn't come to the United States because they wanted to. They got brought here as slaves over 400 years ago. And even after uh, slavery was over... In 1865, in Kentucky in particular, they passed a law. Well, let me back up a little bit. In 1848, when the slavery conversation was becoming a big thing, a constitutional convention was held here in the state of Kentucky for the state of Kentucky to change its constitution. And the reason they wanted to change its constitution was to strengthen property owner rights. And why did they want to strengthen property owner rights? They wanted to strengthen property owner rights because people were talking about ending slavery and slaves were property. And so now in 2020, we're here and we have over 5,000 vacant and abandoned properties. And the modern day effect of that change related to slavery is that we have a really hard time going through the court system, taking these vacant and abandoned properties as a city to try and do something with them. Why? Because in 1848, kentuckians wanted to keep their slaves right so as we move forward and we have slavery that ends right after slavery kentucky passed a law that said that if you were out after dark and you were black and you didn't have papers saying you had justified reason being out after dark that you could be arrested and when you got arrested you were put in jail and you had to pay a thousand dollar fine and how did you get that thousand dollar fine you were first offered back to your former slave owner to do work for them for free as as an indentured servant uh, to pay back that $1,000, right? And that went on until 1892, all right? Move fast forward to the World War II. African-Americans went into the war. They served in the war. Caucasian-Americans went into the war. They served in the war. When white Americans got out of the war, they were able to take advantage of federal programs and buy homes. The African-Americans weren't allowed to participate in those programs. Those same white Americans that participate in those programs and were able to buy homes, built wealth and equity in that property. The general way that people in America build wealth and equity is through owning property.
1: They were able to build, I'm sorry. GI Bill of Rights gave white people an opportunity to buy those homes.
3: And so you buy those homes But then what you get to do, once you have equity built in those homes, you can borrow against that and start a business. So a lot of the big businesses that we see today, that's how they started. Okay, and African-Americans weren't allowed to do that. And so uh, at the same time, you had redlining that was occurring and saying that you couldn't sell homes to African-Americans in certain neighborhoods. And so that's how West Louisville ended up being West Louisville. And so as we are here in 2020 and we're talking about how do we fix all of that that happened what we have to do in my mind is find ways to build wealth and equity in people's lives and home ownership is still a way to do that and so in this year's budget that we just passed we put 5 million dollars we put 5 million dollars in for affordable housing then we put an additional five million dollars in for affordable housing. Except for this is not to be used for multifamily housing. It's to be used for residential housing, residential housing that is going to require that the owner of the property live there for 15 years minimum, and they build what equity into that property, and that the contractors that do the work they hire people from the area and teach them a trade and a skill by doing work on that property uh, so that we are covering several things at once. And so I think we need to expand that even more. We got 5,000 pieces of property and I don't want to stop there because I think it's one thing to teach someone how to be a carpenter or to be an electrician or to build something. It's another thing to teach them how to run the business that does that, right? And to make sure that those opportunities for African-American businesses are taking place within Metro government. Uh, we have over, I think 400 contracts that uh, we do business with in Metro government and only like less than 20 of them are with African-American businesses, right? So why is that? And what do we do to fix it? So yeah. I think those are some of the things that we have to talk about. Yeah. I think we also have to, I'm sorry.
1: Hey, we, well, you you were talking about contracts that that are not awarded to African-Americans because racism You're, you're trying to look like, like uh, Lewis Coleman, but yes. So there's a lot of work to be done. Yes.
2: Councilman, what are the main impacts of global climate? Crisis we all know about, Well, what about your district? What would you do to address the public health effects in, in, of, of this kind of crisis, crisis and, and our specific issues? chemical and and whatever on the people in your district and and, and long-term short-term and long-term
3: well i don't know that i can i don't know that in my district is the issue i think in in our city is more of a a better conversation piece in my district is very limited yeah Mm -hmm. um i would say in our city us working towards lowering emissions in our city as a whole is very important i think as a, as a city government we passed a resolution last year i think it was to have a plan going forward for metro government to limit greenhouse effect from how we do things whether that is us using solar energy on our in our buildings or other alternative forms of energy to power our buildings i know that for example we people may not know this but Over there in the hospital center near the uh, Jewish University of Louisville-Fraser Rehab facility is a chill plant, right? And you'd probably go there to visit a loved one at the hospital, and you'd see this building there, and you'd say, well, that's the chill plant. It's venting something in the air. Well, it's venting coal into the air. That that was a coal-fired plant. That is a coal-fired plant, right? Right there in the middle of the city. We own it. The city owns it. And so we just passed a ordinance a few months ago to convert that to a gas-fired plant as opposed to the coal-fired plant that was sending all the pollution in the air. So there are are things that we can do that are very impactful. How impactful is that, that we're actually switching from a coal-fired plant right in the middle of downtown Louisville, right? So there are a lot of things that we can do, and I think it's important that we do those things. And I think that as technology improves, that some of our partners like Louisville Gas and Electric switching over to alternative forms of energy is a great idea, and and then we should be doing that. You know, we still have a coal-fired plant out on uh, Dixie Highway.
1: Dixie, yeah, yeah.
3: And you know, if you ask the people that live around that plant that have all that soot landing on their cars and their property, it's not a good thing. And so those are some of the things that have to be addressed. But as we address those things, we have to figure out how we're going to pay for that, right? Because it's not free. It's just not. You don't get to. See Say, hey, we're going to switch all of our uh, utilities to electric, and and you're going to have to pay for that you know, we have to find a way to do that uh, that's equitable for everybody. And there's some ideas out there. You know, um, there's a place in Colorado where they use their LIHEAP money instead of providing assistance for people that can't afford their bill. They use that money to transform homes, individual residences into solar powered residences. And they take people that are unemployed or underemployed and use them to do that work and trade teach them to be electricians and solar installers and and that creates job opportunities and they become contractors. And so there's a lot of different ways we can look at this. And I think that we should be doing that. Okay.
2: So is that that five million dollars you mentioned earlier? Is that something that could be channeled into properties, rehabilitation properties that would incorporate uh, solar panels or something like that that would bring people Absolutely, absolutely that could bring people interest to property property like that, if they know they're not going to have utilities to pay, maybe that's something uh, that, $5 million, that $5 million could, could go to. Produce.
3: Yeah, I, I think there's a part that has to go along with that also, and that would be from the state and extending the tax credit right. um, for those things, which they have not done yet. But I, I think that we can and we should. You know, We're going to be moving away from internal combustion engines over the next decade or so. And are, I've not heard our state legislature even having that conversation because we pay for the road improvements through the gas tax, gasoline taxes. And if cars aren't buying gasoline because they're gone to electric propulsion, then how are we going to maintain our roadways, right? We need to be having those conversations now.
1: Absolutely, yeah. So in terms of addressing the inequity that we now know exists and we should have known it years ago, a front-page article in the December 2nd Louisville Courier Journal entitled "Quote Fisher: Racism is a Crisis of Health." End quote. Mayor Greg Fisher outlined a plan for addressing the racial inequities that exist in Louisville, Kentucky. Greg Fisher proposes a series of steps to address these inequities. First, developing behavior health response teams as a non-enforcement alternative or support to police. Second, establishing a plan to ensure every home has broadband and Wi-Fi access. Third, closing the Black pay gap and increasing Black employees in professional, managerial, and technical positions. Finally, a Advocating for a boost to minimum wage, to a living wage, quote, living wage, end quote, and investing in homeowners and in infrastructure improvement in disadvantaged neighborhoods, such as Lower West End. So, David James, is Mayor is the mayor's plan a step in the right direction? What would you change?
3: Well, I I I would say that the mayor's plan is a plan, but I would also say that he was mayor for the last ten years, and I can remember fighting him over the minimum wage because he wanted to. He was threatening a veto when we were trying to pass it, so I don't put a whole lot of credibility into that either. So I would say that all of those things need to be addressed. And I'm glad to hear that the mayor thinks that those things are important now.
1: So what would you add?
3: Well, what I would say is for the last 10 years, he's known those things are important. Why are they important now?
1: Okay. Okay.
2: Councilman, uh, how would you see or how would you like to see the people in your district and others become more involved in the, in the workings and, and the outcomes of, of Louisville community?
3: I would say that that's probably been my, one of my biggest frustrations in my time as being a council person. For example, when I call to have a community meeting, which I used to do a lot more frequently before COVID, there would sometimes only be me and two other people that would show up for those things. Right now, let there some be something going on in the community, then you know people show up. But the average day in and day out of how government operates, most frequently people a lot of times don't have any interest in it whatsoever. I can recall. Even when we have budget hearings, we start budget hearings in April, and during that process in May, we allow citizens and encourage citizens to come in and talk to us about changes they'd like to see or things they'd like to see in the budget or things like that. And you may have five people out of the entire city of 700 plus thousand people show up to talk about that. And so when we talk about the legacy of Breonna Taylor, I think that's one of the changes that we'll see because now I've got people emailing me once a week about the budget and wanting to talk about that. And that's a beautiful thing. And so having more people being involved just in the conversation about government and what they want with their government and what kind of transparency they want with their government and and how they want their government to treat them is is so important because it it was not happening on a regular basis before Breonna Taylor, quite frankly. And so I'm glad to see that people are being more involved and actually calling me and say, send me a copy of the budget, send me a copy of that ordinance, and 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 that that's outstanding. Um, on our side, you know, we listened, and so we now broadcast all of our meetings on facebook live streaming so people can more people can participate we are trying to get more people to want to be involved in their government, ask questions and provide ideas and, and want to actually be a part of it. And so I, I would say that whatever we can do, whatever you can do to drive people to be more involved in their local government, uh, the better off we all are.
1: Okay.
2: It's can one of those things, ahead. you know, we, uh, we we say we're in a really bad time, but we, we keep finding those, those interesting and new ways to communicate. I think this is one of them is Zoom. And uh, so so hopefully that will, that will help us uh, improve a lot of things in the coming months.
1: I agree. The transition time, yeah. Uh,
2: JCPS, Jefferson County Public Schools, plans to build four new schools, three elementary and one middle school in the near future. In the Russell neighborhood, a new school will replace Roosevelt, Perry and Wheatley. Watson Lane and Wilkerson will combine in a new school building. Uh, A new school will be placed uh, in, uh, well, replaced, Gilmore Lane and Indian Trail Elementary. A new middle school will be built in Louisville's East End. The Academy at Shawnee will be renovated. Are those plans fair to students in your district? what should J- JCPS do for schools in your district and the West End?
3: Yeah, so I'm excited about that. I think it's beautiful. Wheatley Elementary and Roosevelt Perry are going to be combining Wheatley Elementaries in my district, and they will be combining at the site of the new uh, 18th and Broadway YMCA, and it's going to be a top-in-class school. The gymnasium of the YMCA is going to be the gymnasium for the school. The doctors and nurses inside the uh, the, the YMCA are going to be servicing the kids that go to the school. So I think it's beautiful. And so as we talk about neighborhood schools and all that, if we were going to do that and and say that we can't do it in West Louisville because we don't have enough schools, right? And so building more schools, top of the line, best in class in this region will cause people from another part of the county that normally do not come to that part of the city. They're going to come to that school because that school is the best in class. Just like right down the street from my house is Manual High School. I can throw a rock there. And so it's the school that everybody wants to. It's a best high school in the state. So if we create the best high schools in the state in West Louisville, in my district, hey, I think it's outstanding. I celebrate Marty, Marty Polio for his, for his efforts.
1: Okay, so we have one last question, Councilman. What's the future look like for David James? Perhaps a campaign for Mayor of Louisville? Other political ambitions?
3: So right now, David James is very happy being the President of Metro Council and serving the citizens of the 6th District. I won't say that I have not thought about what the future is. I haven't made a decision about that at this time, but I know that I'm very happy being a councilman. I enjoy the job that I do and even though I get extremely frustrated sometimes, but that's that's where I'm at right now.
1: Okay. So listeners, we're out of time. Our guest today has been Louisville Metro Council member and president of the council, David James. Our program that features David James will be repeated Tuesday, December 14th at 8 a.m. and Wednesday, December 16th at 6 a.m. You can listen live stream by visiting our website at forwardradio.com and clicking on Listen Live Now. The Solutions
2: <laughs> to Violence program featuring Councilman David James will be placed in our archives Wednesday, December 16th. To listen through our archives, just visit our website at forwardradio.org. Scroll down to the program archives and scroll down then to Solutions to Violence, that program that features Louisville Councilman David James. For more information and a schedule of programming that will surprise and delight and even challenge you, visit us at forwardradio.org and click on broadcast schedule. Thank you once again for joining us with Solutions to Violence.